if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, how are you doing? Pretty good, Neil. Awesome. And to everyone out there who's listening to this podcast while they're out for a run or jog or exercising, keep going. You're doing great. Keep it up. We'll try to give you some good stuff here to keep you motivated, keep you going. David, do you have a story to tell us? I might have a story to tell you, Neil. All right. Well, the idea is that I ask you this question and your answer takes us on an adventure. The question is, David, oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's 532 AD, and in the great city of Byzantium, a small church, a Bain mob, surrounded it, howling, demanding that the two murderers who have taken refuge there be dragged out and executed. But the church is a sanctuary and will not give them up. And as the day wears on, more mobs are gathering. These ones supporting these allegedly dangerous radicals. All right, David, we have got quite the battle going on here. We've got competing mobs getting together at this church, some alleged murderers, a lot to sort out here, David. So take us back to 532 A.D., and what is life like in Byzantium? Byzantium is not just any city in 532 A.D. Because this is almost, but not quite, a hundred years after the famous Fall of Rome. I've heard of that, David. That's good. The Fall of Rome wasn't quite the fall of the Roman Empire. The elements of the Roman Empire that weren't in the capital survived long after that initial sack of the city and the largest and most powerful of those remnants of empire, those successor states, took Byzantium as its capital and became what later generations would refer to as the Byzantine Empire. And in its day, it wasn't just the sad remnant of the faded glories of Rome. It was a thriving, powerful commercial society, the largest empire in Europe by a large stretch. And this was its capital, and this was where the business of politics was going down. Okay, David, so in 532... Roman Empire is now done, and we've moved on to the Byzantine Empire? Yep. All right. And we've got a thriving city here. Now take us to our alleged murderers. Who are these two? Well, they belong to dangerous, radical factions that have been decried by politicians, by the church, by virtually every major authority you can think of. So maybe we should talk about those factions first. 
those factions aren't quite the political or religious fanatics that you might be thinking of. And you hear me talking about this, by the way. They're sports fans. Oh, sports fans. Always a dangerous bunch. David, were they cheering for the Yankees? Now they're step up from Yankees fans. They may be dangerous, violent radicals, but they're not Yankees fans. Yeah, thank goodness for that. So the big sport in the Byzantine Empire was chariot racing. That was the big, exciting, it drew the big crowds for a high-energy, high-risk sporting event. And chariot racing wasn't cheap. It was very expensive at the time to pay for a full chariot team and the horses and the professional driver and the chariot. So there needed to be large organizations that would support getting these chariots actually onto field to race. And they also, like modern sports teams, encouraged fans, encouraged large organized groups of fans to come out and cheer for their group. Doesn't sound too different from modern sports, David. Oh, in a lot of ways, it was a very modern kind of thing, but in other ways, it was different. So one of the ways it differed was that the Byzantine Empire, as you may have guessed, was not a democracy. It wasn't. It was run by an emperor. Is that right? It was run by an emperor. It was not a democracy. So the emperor didn't have any very good ways of getting the feeling for what the population supported or opposed. There weren't modern polling companies going out there to find that out for him. But what the emperor believed that the population supported or opposed could be a very powerful influence on what he actually did because he wanted to be popular just like anyone else. So maybe if you're a politician in the Byzantine Empire, some kind of court official, and you want to support your particular program, what you would do is you would go out to one of the big chariot racing teams, either the Greens or the Blues. The chariot racing teams were named after their fans' colors. And the Reds and the Whites were nobodies. They were the bottom of the league, like the Miami Dolphins today, for example. But the Greens and the Blues were the two big chariot racing teams at the time. And you would get them to cheer for a specific slogan. You'd have them shout it in the stands, and that would convince the Emperor. He would hear a bunch of people shouting this and go, oh, hey... It must be really popular. The people must love that guy. So maybe I should promote him. So they're slipping political messages into sports chants. That was how things were done in the Byzantine Empire for hundreds of years. Well, David, we did see the U.S. president being booed at a World Series game. So I guess things haven't changed that much. Sometimes when it's hard for people to make their voices heard in other ways, they just shout. Not complicated, but it works. Even at sporting games. Even at sporting events. So the chariot racing associations weren't just chariot racing 
fan groups. They had a sort of political edge to them. Different ones would support different factions, and that could be, you know, powerful. They were also neighborhood-based, like a modern sporting team will be based in a specific city. They were based in a specific neighborhood, so if you were from the Blues neighborhood, you were expected to cheer for the Blues. And so they were these big, powerful groups with a political edge and large numbers of young men following them and cheering for them. And unfortunately, frequently, that spilled over into violence, riots on the streets of the city as, after matches, different groups of the supporters of the Blues or the Greens would run into each other and they were unhappy about what had happened on the racing circuit, get into fights. Again, not too unlike modern sports. It still happens, unfortunately, but I can imagine that the rioting was even worse back in 532, David. So what happened to get us to our situation that we're talking about here? So the start of the situation we're about to talk about was, by the standards of the day, very boring, nothing special. There was a race, there was some dispute about the results of the race, there were some drunken fans who encountered each other in the square spilling out of the great hippodrome, which was where the races were held, and there was a fight. Some people died in the riot that ensued, and two specific, alleged, particularly violent members of the rioters were pursued by a mob of people who were not fans specifically, but who were unhappy with the fact that they'd been rioting in their neighborhood, which is a reasonable thing to be unhappy about, and they fled to a church for sanctuary. All of this was very typical for the Byzantine period chariot racing. All right, David, sounds like it was quite the race. I'm sure they had uh, quite the tailgate going if they were up to that level of shenanigans. (laughs) So we've got our two alleged murderers trapped in the church but seeking sanctuary. Are the people who are coming to their support, David, just fellow members of the same uh, racing team fandom? Well, actually, in a heartwarming moment, the Blues and the Greens, the two great arch rivals on the chariot racing scene, came together to support these two alleged murderers or rioters or however you want to refer to them because they felt that they were just, you know, acceptable fans who were being wrongfully accused maybe or maybe not wrongfully accused but definitely shouldn't be executed so there were actually supporters of both teams coming together to support these two guys trapped in the church which is when this situation started to become a little different from your typical chariot racing riot well david i like it that we've got these rival sports fans coming together to support their own against the non sports fans who just want the rioting out of their neighborhood. How does this become not such a typical incident? So the emperor of Byzantium at this point 
is Emperor Justinian I. Now, Justinian is not having a particularly good year in 532. He was at war with the Persians, the traditional enemy of the Roman Empire and now the Byzantine Empire, the Persian Empire. And it didn't go super well. Uh, it could have gone worse. could have gone better. He just signed a peace treaty. To get that peace treaty signed, he agreed to pay off the Persian Empire for some money they claimed they were owed. And to pay them off, he needed to raise that money, which meant raising taxes, which he knew wasn't popular. So he's more than a little bit worried about what's going on in his capital city because he already knows he's not the most popular guy in the empire right now. So he decides that he wants to calm this whole thing down. So he decides we're definitely not executing these two guys and maybe we're even gonna, you know, mitigate their sentence a bit compared to what it usually would be. Not too sure, but to announce it, to get all these people off the streets, he's gonna have another chariot race. And then he's gonna make his announcement as to their fate at the race. So Justinian is gonna pander to the sports fans. He's gonna side with these rioters and say, it's not so bad. And not only that, he's gonna give them another race so he can announce what a good guy he is to sports fans at this big sporting event. Exactly. But again, it doesn't quite go as planned. Because once he announces this race, a lot of the chariot racing fans start thinking, why are these guys getting punished at all? Why aren't they just going free? And why is Justinian getting to decide all of this? He seems like a terrible emperor anyway. So his attempt to be nice to the chariot racing fans is backfiring. They're less happy with him now than they were when he was just doing nothing. The chariot racing fans really just saw through all of his pandering. They are not falling for it at all, are they, David? So that takes us to the race that he organized to make this announcement. Starts off normal. The fans are in the seats of the stadium. The blues are shouting blue slogans. Greens are shouting green slogans. Everything seems normal. And then a new chant starts to arise. Fans are shouting, Mika, Mika, translates as conquer. And it's a traditional cry of revolutionaries in the Byzantine Empire. And even worse, it's not just coming from one segment of the stands. It's coming from all of them. So Justinian, in his attempt to quell the sports fans, has actually started a revolution against himself? 
I mean, as good historians, we can debate how much of it is his fault and how much of it was pre-planned, how many leaders in the chariot racing fan organization slash political parties of the time already had decided they wanted a revolution and this was just the spark. But yes, there's a revolution starting now at the Hippodrome. And Justinian needs to figure out how to respond. Well, David, I guess we understand now why politicians get so nervous when athletes start uh, kneeling or talking about politics. This is going very poorly for Justinian. He's already made one potentially poor decision. Is he going to be able to turn this ship around, David? Or uh, is he going to keep missing the mark here in 532 and keep having a bad year? Well, things definitely don't start out great. As the fans chanting fills the stadium, Justinian's bodyguards hurry him away barely ahead of the now potentially violent mob. And in the Hippodrome, the fans, not really clear who precisely, but somebody declares that Hypatius, another claimant to the imperial throne, is the true emperor, and that they're now supporting his claim to the purple, the imperial purple, the symbol of the Byzantine Empire. And... As they march out of the stadium and head towards the palace, Justinian's advisors start to panic. His bodyguards actually suggest fleeing the city to reorganize from elsewhere. So now this has started to take on a even bigger problem for the emperor, eh, David? He actually has a real claimant against him. They've left the Hippodrome. They're now in the streets. Is Justinian going to have to flee? Justinian is considering it. According to Procopius, our best source for Byzantine politics of the day, but his wife, Theodosia, who famously and controversially was not a noblewoman before he married her in his younger days, stops and tells... Justinian and all of his advisors around him, they will not be leaving the city. She has not become empress just to flee and live as an exile in some foreign land. According to Procopius, she says, if we cannot win, at least the purple will make a good burial shroud. Ooh, another badass quote, David. You know I love it. We got to get like a siren for that or something. Badass quote alert there. Seems Justinian made a good choice in marrying someone who wasn't a noblewoman because she is not giving up this crown without a fight. So now the situation bogs down. The rioters slash rebels can't take the palace. Its walls are too high. It can't get past even the small professional force of Justinian's bodyguard. At the same time, Justinian, in the immediate aftermath of the uprising, has no troops immediately to hand to try and crush this revolution. So, he sends out word. There's a general in the city, Belisarius. He's actually here 
because he's been recalled from the front after being accused of corruption. But he's essentially been cleared of those charges, and Justinian never believed in them anyway. So Justinian sends the message. He's to rally all of the troops in the vicinity of the capital who are still loyal that he can find and report to the palace to lead a counteroffensive. At the same time, Justinian goes to one of his court eunuchs, one of the powerful officials serving in his government, and sends him on a secret mission. David, this is turning into some real Game of Thrones stuff here. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. What is Justinian's plan to get out of this? So the first phase of Justinian's counteroffensive plans is Narses, the secret mission. You see, back in the day, like pretty much everybody else, Justinian was a chariot racing fan blue to be precise and he's decided that it's time to call on his old contacts in the blue organization and send Narcisse to them with cash to try and split this newfound unity between the greens and the blues is causing him so much trouble ah very good plan weaken his enemies split them in two is it going to work? Are the Blues going to become loyal to the guy who was once one of their own? Well, the thing is, it's still a hard sell to convince the Blues to come all the way back to supporting Justinian. But at the same time, you've got to remember, they hate the Greens. Of course they do. They're traditional arch-rival team. They didn't just start loving them because they started working together. So when Justinian's agents start blaming the Greens for things going wrong in the revolution, a split arises, and a bunch of the Blues, who aren't willing to go back to Justinian, decide that they're going home, that they're not being treated fairly, and they're not going to support this Green revolt. That was a very smart move by Justinian. He played them against each other. That was a smart thing to do, since they are sports fans, and you wouldn't expect Barcelona and Madrid fans to get together, so why would you expect Blues and Greens to work together? Exactly. So now it's time for phase two. Getting the Blues to go home may have weakened the revolution, but only force can crush it. Elisarius arrives with the troops he's hastily raised around the capital, a random mishmash of reserve units, various elite guards of the fortress walls, and everybody else he was able to find who's ready to fight for Justinian. He marches them to the Hippodrome, bursts in, heading initially for Hypatius himself to try and seize the pretender to the throne and end this with minimal bloodshed. But the plan goes awry. Patience escapes, and now Belisarius's troops are confronting the bulk of the remaining revolutionaries who, remember, are just ordinary people, chariot racing fans, in the Hippodrome, and Belisarius gives the order, kill them all. Well, David, 
I'm not an odds maker if we're talking sports here, but I wouldn't give good odds to a bunch of sports fans against a bunch of soldiers. Is this going to turn into a bloodbath? I've already said that our best source for the period is Procopius. Procopius isn't a perfect source, and especially in numbers, he sometimes exaggerates more than a little bit. Procopius claims that 30,000 people died on the streets of Byzantium as Belisarius's troops, block by block, restored order across the city. That may be an exaggeration, but definitely the quelling of the Nika revolts was a bloodbath of epic proportions. Well, David, 30,000 people, that would be like if Harvard Stadium was wiped out when they were there to watch a Harvard Crimson football game. That's a lot of people, if indeed that's how big the bloodbath was in the Hippodrome. Is that a victory for Justinian? Is this the end of the revolution? This is. Terrible as it is to call it a victory after essentially massacring his own capital city, it is a victory for Justinian. He gets a reunified Byzantine Empire now supporting him and peace with the Persians, allowing him to turn to his long, dearly held secret plan to retake the city of Rome in order to recreate the Roman Empire of old. And to do it in recognition of how they've helped him in this moment of his greatest need, he decides that the two generals commanding this expedition to Italy will be Belisarius and Narses, in spite of the fact that they hate each other, which is going to cause problems down the line. But that's a story for another time. Well, David, that was fun. A story about sports and sports history. You don't get that too often, so thanks for telling us. I enjoyed it, Neil. And hopefully things won't go so badly at this year's Super Bowl. We can hope. And David, there has been a lot of sports history in the last year, too. The Nationals winning their first World Series just recently. Congratulations to them. The Raptors win their first NBA title. The St. Louis Blues winning their first Stanley Cup. All sorts of great sports history. People will be telling these stories in a few years. Of course, thankfully, a lot less bloodshed in sports nowadays. David, we always like to end with a quiz, and I have a quiz for you. You want to play along? Hit me. All right. Well, this week, the Jeopardy! Tournament of Champions is on, so I thought we could play some Jeopardy. All right. So I have some categories here. We'll let you pick the clues you want to answer in the categories. See how much money you can get. And then final Jeopardy. All right, David. So your categories are world history, explorers, 20th century names, the French and Indian War, and I appointed that Supreme Court justice. Where would you like to start? I'll take... French and Indian War for 200, Neil. All right, French and Indian War for 200. The 1754 to 63 French and Indian War was the North American phase of this global conflict that was two years shorter. What is the Seven Years' War? 
You got it. The Seven Years' War, $200. Pick another category, David. Let's try World History. World History, and what category clue would you like? Let's try 600. All right. This empire that reached its height under Suleiman came to an end in 1922. What is the Ottoman Empire, Neil? You got it, $600. All right, David, three categories left. Explorers, 20th century names, and I appointed that Supreme Court justice. All right, I'll take I appointed that Supreme Court justice for 800 Neil. All right, William Rehnquist as Associate Justice. Who is Dwight D. Eisenhower? Sorry, David. The correct answer was Richard Nixon. But if it makes you feel any better on the real Jeopardy, this was a triple stumper. No one got this one. Tricky one. All right. Let's try Explorers for 400. All right. A sea off Alaska is named for this Danish explorer. Sea off Alaska? Who is Barents? Bering, you got it. Vitis Bering. All right, David, one category left. 20th century names. What price level would you like? I'll take the 600, Neil. All right. Michael Collins, a hero of the Irish struggle for independence, fought in the 1916 rebellion named for this holiday. What is Easter? Easter is correct, David. $600 bringing your total to 1000 all right, David, and for final Jeopardy, the category is Ancient History. How much would you like to wager? Let's put it all on the line, Neil. 1,000. All right, here is your final Jeopardy clue. According to Herodotus, a messenger was sent 150 miles from Athens to Sparta just before this 490 BC battle. What is the Battle of Marathon? You got it, David. You double your money to $2,000. The check is in the mail. Great job. I'll be holding you to that, Neil. Thanks for playing along, David. Thanks to everyone for listening. Make sure you follow us. Feel free to subscribe so you get these automatically into your inbox as soon as we do new episodes. Like us. Leave us a review. We do appreciate it. Have a great day.